Do you guys ever get a little bit peckish? Do you get that mm, little rumbling tummy, that belly telling you, hey, I need some grub, I need some energy. <laughs> There's only one place for it. The bridge in Hyangenech has got your needs sorted right out. All sorts of delicious food. Don't get me started on the Sunday Carvery, I'll get to that. But all sorts of food, whether you want a steak or whether you want a mixed grill or a lasagna, it's all there. The desserts there are incredible. I've been in the kitchen, I've watched them being handmade. Absolutely beautiful. If you want a drink, if you want a pint, no problem, they serve good beer. If you want a coffee, oh ho ho, only the finest coffee blends are served in the Bridge Inn in Kjangenech and onto that Sunday Carvery. Hey, we've all been there on a Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning even, you're thinking, hmm, I don't really fancy cooking, but where can I go? Where can I trust? Where's going to put on a good spread for me, look after me, be nice, be courteous, lovely staff? There's only one place. The Bridge in Hyangenech. The finest Sunday carvery in all the land. Located just off Junction 48 on the way, well, of the M4. I may as well tell you the road. Just off Junction 48 of the M4, heading towards Hyangenech. Take a little left-hand turn to Hyangenech, the Bridge Inn. Honestly, you will not be disappointed. Bridge in Hyangenech. Here we go. This episode is with a young man who can be classed as a cult hero, certainly down in South Wales with the Swans. The man who scored the, the goal that got the ball rolling. Promotion from League Two to League One, the all important goal. He'll tell you who the goalkeeper was, but uh, important goal against Shrewsbury one week at the Vetch and then scored the winner up at Berry early on in that game uh, to make sure that the Swans got themselves up ready for life in the Liberty Stadium uh, an unbelievable promotion for them that all happened before I got to know him I, uh, I met the squad probably a month six weeks later after they'd been out to Magaluf to celebrate the promotion win um, but yeah today Mr Adrian Forbes uh, a guy who started off Growing up in London, a uh, rough council estate in London, made the journey over to Norwich as a, as a young aspiring footballer and got his breakthrough. Even though he'll tell you himself, a little attitude problem at times, um, but broke in real early. Young kid, went on to play loads of games for Norwich and then moved on. Luton, the Swans, probably his, his best period as a, as a professional footballer and then moved on to other clubs had a really good career um, but we get into a, a nice chat he was heading over uh, to Carmarthen to play in a charity game that I was playing in as well so we thought why not meet why not record a podcast and uh, we met up at the bridge in Hyangenech beautiful little spot for any sort of uh, any sort of grub that you might be looking for so check those boys out bridge in Hyangenech thank you for looking after us with a bacon roll and a coffee Hopefully you guys enjoy this conversation. It gets deep at times. Forbes is talking about uh, his struggles in retiring from, from playing football. But he's in a good place now. 
He's in a better place after recording the podcast. Enjoy. He likes to tell you if anyone will listen about his seven caps, his chocolate knees, his distinct lack of pace. Now it's a long shot. Adrian Forbes, how are you, mate? Well, <clears throat> where do I start? Four and a half hour journey down you, here. You look tired. And I'm feeling a bit tired. Um, obviously, down in Carmarthen today for a, for a charity match and an opportunity to meet some some old teammates like yourself mm-hmm. and catch up with the likes of Truns and and Andy Robinson. So you know, it's a great opportunity a to raise a bit of money for a good charity and ultimately to get to see some old teammates. You've been playing a bit. You look you look quite fit. I think I've been lucky. I say, I say quite. <laughs> quite. Uh, what you see now might be a completely different story in a couple of hours when I'm running around, but I've been lucky in that I've managed to, I think, keep the old footballer's metabolism so I can still eat what I want mm. and I haven't put the old weight on just yet. But as I say, the old knee, hamstring and back might give up in a couple of hours when I'm trying to run around and control the football. It is It is going to be nice though, isn't it? Like I'm. This is going to be my second game of football in three years right <laughs> but you get that little bit of a buzz back don't you yeah. you know excited I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I'm treating it as professionally as I used no. to you know we just enjoyed a little bacon sandwich haven't we indeed it's gone in the days of I'll be setting up for a game having um, pre-match scrambled egg and you know beans and that no anything and, and just whatever if I could have had a fry up this morning I would have had that as well but like you say it, it is great I don't think as a footballer even when you come out of the professional world I think your mindset still gets you right for a game and you know when it comes to that game time you still want to perform yeah. you still want to put on in these sort of scenarios put on a show and you know hopefully all of us together today can can do that forever comes out to watch it's like that balance isn't it we were just talking about who we might be coming up against and yeah. these tackles might be flying in I'm going in thinking I just want a nice little afternoon yeah. a little jolly up a laugh a bit of a <laughs> laugh and a smile a bit of ticky tacker mm-hmm. it's not going to be like that because no, no, we're all competitive aren't we and you know even in a charity game you know you know you want to win yeah. and if there's opportunities for you to get involved in that tackle or flip it the other way someone smashes you early doors yeah. you know for well you're not going to accept it you know even in a charity game if you can get him you'll get him so um, we'll see today how it pans out and we're, com- we're, we're coming up against Dion Burton and Dele Adebola how's that happened? and again as we talked about earlier I don't really know how we've managed to get to a situation where those two strikers are coming to, <laughs> to come off and to, to play in a charity game but you know it just shows what as an ex-pro what you, what you can do 
in these sort of scenarios, raising money for a good cancer charity. So uh, fingers crossed it, it'll be a good old day, but I'm certainly sure there'll be some aching, broken bodies mm. tonight, definitely. And the old potent, uh, I mean, it wouldn't have been a front three back back in the day. There would have been two strikers, but yeah. Trundle, Trundle up top, yep. hey, if we're selected. If selected. Forbesy on one side, mm -hmm. Andy Robinson <clears throat> on the other, deadly. It was. It was back in the day. It was a, a deadly strike force. And I think, as you say, it was predominantly Truns up top, a couple of occasions with Big Bayouac and Fenwa, or uh, Liam Knight, uh, Rory Fallon. So there Paul was a lot, Connor. Paul Connor. Yeah. So there was a lot of good strikers that I was fortunate enough to play just behind. And I think I think everyone well knows, you know, it was a period of time for me personally that was just a very, very successful two years of literally everything I tried to do fell into place, I would say. Best, best period of your career? Yeah, I think so. I think taking apart, obviously, my time at Norwich when I was fortunate enough to get into the first team at 16, stroke 17, a bit of a freak of nature at the time, because if you look now, it's very rare that happens, someone getting in the first team so young. But I think it just shows that actually when I left Swansea and went off to sign for Blackpool, the first year at Blackpool, I think I played something like 46 games and only got one goal yeah. and was a shadow of the player that you saw at Swansea. Um, so I think that tells you that Swansea as a club was right for me. And potentially, I think probably you can say that I was right for Swansea as well. So definitely a good period. I find it crazy. Like football, opinions of this player's shit, this player's mm -hmm. good or whatever. Yeah. It's not as simple as that, is it? Like you're, if your face fits at one particular club. Yeah. So you, you signed for Swansea, what would it be, 2004? About four or five, yeah. Yeah, you could have signed for another club in yeah. League Two at that time yeah. and things not work out. Yeah. You're exactly the same player. 100%. It's just sometimes these things just fit into place, don't they? They do. And, you know, just talking about that, on the actual morning when I came to Swansea, I went down to Bristol Rovers. It was quite a long day. So we drove from Norwich to Bristol Rovers, had, had talks there, Yeah. then went down to Yeovil. So met Kenny Jack in, um, in um, Bristol? No, no, Bristol Rovers. Met, so, this was, oh, okay. I was met, so I was going to sign for Bristol Rovers. That was one of the options I had. Yeah. Um, then went down to, I can't remember who the manager was at the time. Then went on down to Yeovil. Yeah. I spoke to a certain Mr. Johnson down there. Mm -hmm. Good contract. And I thought, actually, you know what? Yeovil are going to pay that. It's far. But yeah, it's, it's winning at the minute. It's, it's trumping Bristol Rovers at the moment. Then I had to put the Vetch. And I'm like, what is this place? Why, really? Why am I going to sign at this club? Look at the state of it. Bearing in mind, I'd just gone past Port Talbot as well. And I was like, is this Swansea? I'm not bringing my kids here. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not yeah. bringing my kids here. Unbeknown to me at the time. It was a little bit further along. But then you got speaking to Kenny and you got speaking to Hugh Jenkins. And I know he's getting a bit of stick at the moment. But at the time of speaking to Hugh, there was just something that suggested, you know, the Vetch, albeit as run down as it looked at the time. Just something told me it was going to be the right the right place for me. And as you quite rightly say, you know, Bristol Rovers, Yeovil, there was a couple of other clubs that were showing interest at the time, but it was very, very quick and easy decision to make that Swansea's going to be where I want the next chapter of my career to be. What, what was it like at the Vetch? I, I personally, I've never been there. Yeah. Uh, so being a North Wales boy, the closest I came to going to the Vetch was, do you remember the Premier Cup? I do indeed, yeah. yeah so the Premier Cup yeah. that, that season, I'm yeah. not sure if you scored the winner. You, anyway, you beat Wrexham in the final. In the final, yeah. We played Wrexham in the semi-final for Bangor. Yeah. And um, I was a Bangor captain at the time, 1-1, and I've put this header. I don't know if it was extra time. What a header it was. <laughs> and fucking Foster, the keeper that went mm -hmm. on, played for Man United in West Brom, yeah. pulled off an unbelievable save. They go on and win the game. They play you in the final. Yeah. But that, I, I could have been you a part been of the there. last ever game at the Vest. You what, could have been. What, what was special about it? Because from, from the stories, it was a shithole. It was. It was a dive. You had the North Bank, which was 
all standing, which even at the time, many grounds, you wouldn't see one stand dedicated to just standing. So it, you, you'd go out the tunnel, yeah, and the halfway line? Halfway line, and the big stand opposite the tunnel was just standing. Behind you was seating. Okay. To the right was a two-tiered stand, which looked like you don't want to get too many people in there because that's <laughs> not going to stay up. And then behind the goal, the other end was, was standing again. Atmosphere were brutal. Teams would, and I know the likes of Truns, Robbo, and anyone that was in that squad at the time will back me up on this. We would come out the tunnel on a night game. We we knew we'd won. Yeah, we knew we'd won because it was it was ruthless. The North Bank would suck the opposition in, um, but they'd be so supportive of us as the home team players. Yeah, and the way they took to me was unbelievable. And I think I was as a right winger. I was always starting the game right hand side opposite that stand. Yeah, and. I'd have some great games, I'd also have some dire games, but they still backed me and they still supported me. The noise that you would get from that from that fan base was just, was exceptional. It was really, really, really exceptional. I'd probably say I've never encountered fans quite like that, as noisy and as supportive as that. You get to many a ground and you make a mistake and there's that, oh, from the fans. Yeah. Not here. It was, or not at that time, it was very much almost a, don't worry about that, Forbesy, get on with it, go again, and, and you did. And I think, summed up by, I was fortunate enough to score the very last league goal there, past a certain Joe Hart. And I can you, remember... You never mentioned that, I've Forbesy. never mentioned, mate, I'm still dining out on that several <laughs> times. <laughs> that is my one and only claim to fame. Any opportunity I get to post that picture, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will do it. Definitely, definitely. But... You know, there was people that come to that game on the day with like um, forks and spades to take a little bit of the grass because they'd, okay. been, they'd watched so many games at the Vetch. There was people that took seats because they'd sat on that seat for years or their dad had sat on it, their great granddad had sat on it. So they took the seats home. And I think that just explains what the Vetch meant to the fans. But certainly a group of us as players, we appreciated what the Vetch meant to those fans as well. Your period at Swansea is a, is a real interesting one. Almost not historic. That's the wrong word, but you know, I, I signed, just moved to the Liberty Stadium, so that that's the world that I knew. Yeah. Um, other players would have just played at the Vetch. Your two seasons, mm -hmm. one at the Vetch, one at the Liberty. So you yeah. you had the best of both worlds, if you like, because the Liberty was special as well, but different reasons, wasn't it? It was, and I think my my period of time was strange in that I had that that goal against Joe, as we spoke about, which was the last league game there. Um, and then a week later, we go off to Gig Lane and we get promoted off a goal that I scored after about 20 seconds. Yeah. And you know, you've got 6,000 of the Jack Army up at Gig Lane. Yeah. 6,000 fans have travelled from Swansea up to Gig. We had, I think there was only about 1,000 Berry fans on the day. Really? So yeah, so we had a monopoly. We had the whole ground. We had three stands at the ground, which is unheard of. It's unheard of. Um, but it was one of those situations where I think the boys subconsciously knew we could not go into the Liberty Stadium and be a League Two club. Yeah, couldn't happen. Couldn't happen. And I think Kenny had Kenny had because uh, you've seen it getting built and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, we'd go there during when when it hadn't been finished. We were there. We would get shown round of what it's going to look like. This is the changing rooms. This is what the pitch is going to be. So there was a real anticipation and excitement about getting to play there. And I don't think anyone ever really mentioned it in the dressing room, saying that we can't be playing at this ground in League Two. And I think that gave us a little bit more, a little bit of a momentum to make sure we did, you know, get over the line and, you know, scoring that goal after 
20 seconds and then we defended, literally really? defended for 89 minutes. Where were Barry in the league at that time? Barry weren't playing for anything. They were mid-table, not playing for anything. They couldn't have gone up. Were they being a bit busy though? They were being incredibly busy. God and we're say. like, come on lads, like, yeah. wind your necks in boys. Because you do, don't you? You speak yeah. to the opponent and say, mate, you're up against a left back. Yeah. Just stay in your position, Same pal. position. Don't worry, we've got the goal. You can't do anything. Yeah. But it was made worse on the day by the fans, by the, Swan by the Swansea fans. Because what happened was, because our... Um, our game kicked off 10 minutes later because of the, the mad jack bastards, as you call them, travelling up. Yeah. So we had to get a delay because they couldn't all get in. So it was, we needed to beat Southend's score on the day. I can't remember who Southend were playing, but we needed to better their score to get automatic promotion. Yeah. So we go one and up, pitch invasion. Everyone celebrating the goal. Brilliant. So we're getting the fans off the pitch. We play on. Then all of a sudden, Southend do a 10 minutes behind us. They go a goal down. Right pitch invasion to tell us that they've got a goal down so we're like alright get off the pitch get off the pitch everyone get off the pitch so then obviously the South End game finishes before our game pitch invasion Yeah. so the fans are running on to tell us just don't concede if you don't concede we're promoted oh cheers boys yeah, yeah. and we're like oh god so we've got the next 10 minutes of just pure nerves but with that last pitch invasion the referee actually said look if they come on again I might have to cancel the game so get them off the referee was good as gold so, oh God, so we're like, literally, and you, there'll probably be some footage of myself and Truns, and I can remember it, telling them, trying to explain to these fans, look, you're going to kill it for us if you don't get off. Yeah. And they're buzzing, aren't they? <laughs> they yeah. don't care. Yeah. So eventually we get them off, and I can remember the referee going, I get the impression they're going to come on the pitch, I'm going to blow the whistle in a minute, start walking this way. So if you look at any footage, you can see the game's going on, but every single player is already by the tunnel yeah. when he blows the whistle, so everyone runs down there. Um, but again, I think that just that just shows the fan base that this club has, and going into the Liberty Stadium, that club needed that promotion to be successful and achieve what they have done. Well, up until this season, yeah. achieve what they did. What you're talking about there, that must have been the referee absolutely stitching up one of his linesmen. <laughs> I bet the referee was real close to that tunnel with you, and the the opposition yep. linesman's just yep. there thinking, "Oh my God, I'm by myself." And that would have been in the days where there wouldn't have been any radios, <laughs> so he wouldn't have been able to get that information across to the linesman. And I know I didn't tell the lino because I was straight off the pitch. But you know, it was a great day, and that you've probably heard the story about Willie Garay, the goalkeeper, yeah, yeah, getting arrested, ask, yeah. getting arrested straight after. What, for... what did you boys know about that? So Willie's Willie's gone into the crowd, has he? Yeah. Well, what, we wanted to come back out on the pitch, and obviously all the Berry stewards are like, "You, you can't get on the pitch." The pitch is full of Swansea fans. Yeah. All six, every one of the 6,000 fans are on the pitch. You can't get out there. So then the steward says, if you go up this staircase, you'll then be over to, above the dugouts yeah. and you can overlook the fans. So we do, don't we? And you can imagine, you've been in the dressing rooms yourself, the likes of your Andy Robinsons, your Truns, how lively they are as characters. We've got a few bottles of champagne. Yeah. It's going off. <laughs> it's absolute carnage. So we go up the stairs. So as we walk up the top of the stairs, you've got all the directors from... Both clubs are in there as well. And then this mob comes up, don't it? And we're just going, just rowdy. Police aren't happy. So the police push from the left-hand side to try and push us down a central staircase. Yeah. They push on the left and push from the right. So we're just getting squashed in the middle. Willie almost falls over Oof. the back, over, over literally onto the top of the dugout. So Willie in his broken French English basically swears at the policeman. And the policeman turns around to him and says, you do that again, I'll arrest you for foul and abusive language. So Will, in Will's way, so basically, oh, fuck you. Yeah. I'm arresting you for found abusive <laughs> language. You don't have to say anything. And we're like, whoa, 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 what's going on? And Willie's quite a big guy. And he had 
his arms like that, they were trying to get the handcuffs on and he was going like that, getting them close together, close together, then going, no, 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 no. And just separating <laughs> his arms again. So it probably took him 10, 15 minutes to get these handcuffs on. And then same with anything, he then got bundled out the ground, yeah. <laughs> bundled on the back of a, in the back of a van and off to Greater Manchester Police Station. At which point Kenny Jackett's going crazy because we've just won promotion. Who, who was he angry with? He was angry with the police because yeah. like, how can you arrest him for what's gone on there? It's your own fault. Yeah. And the most surreal moment was we all get changed, we get on the bus and then Kenny says, right lads, we can't go without our big goalkeeper, let's go get him. <laughs> so we get on the bus, Swansea City's team bus is now outside, Greater Manchester Police Station, parked up, Kenny vanishes, comes back after about 10 minutes, right everyone, they're going to let him out in about 15 minutes, where's the off licence? So and literally just behind us there was an Asda. Yeah. So we literally went straight into Asda and it was, I'll be honest with you, what alcohol do you want? Because we got the drive back to Swansea. Yeah, there was a few broken people by the time we got back to Swansea from Bury, that's for sure. But great memories. Yeah, they're, they're the moments and they, you know, sometimes people talk about the nights out and you would have gone out after that, no doubt, and had a, yeah. a real good time. But oh, yes. sometimes on that bus... You know, someone's cracking open the bottles, using their teeth and mm -hmm. stuff like that. They're, they're the ones, aren't they? They are the memories, and I think... Robbo would have his top off. And that, there's there's a few pictures now. There's one picture of, and it's quite funny, because the picture, I think it's me, Chris O'Leary, Brits, and I think it might have been Paul Connor, to be honest with you. Um, and I've got a bottle of WKD Blue, and I'm like, what? I'm looking at that now, at 39 years old, going, what in the world were you drinking, lad? <laughs> but at the time, that was a drink to have. And I think they're the memories that you look back now and you go... Yeah, that's, that's what football's about. It's a successful team, but a successful bunch of mates as well yeah. that we would literally have done anything for anyone at that period of time. Real, real good, solid group of boys. Because I've done a couple of you know a couple of these podcasts with a few members of that squad, Sam, yeah. Monks, mm -hmm. Leon, uh, done with Bayo. Yeah. What, what do you remember? What's your memories of that pre-season, which was my first pre-season in professional football yeah. coming up on trial? Big Bayo getting pushed up the sand dunes by Colin Pascoe and his dodgy hip. You know, that was a tough pre-season, was pre-season. That was a tough pre-season. And it was a pre-season where it was almost right. You know, we've got this promotion. We've assembled a really good squad. We've added to the squad with some really good players. And now we've got to enter this arena. It's not a stadium. At Liberty, it's an arena. Hmm. We need to justify now everything that's come before it. We need to prove and show that actually, you know what? We're not a League Two team. We are a League One team that is now going to be pushing to be a championship team. And, you know, you look at Bayo coming in. I remember looking at the size of this guy going, how in the world is this dude going to play football? It's got to be more rugby. And I remember... <laughs> I can't remember what army camp we were. I can't remember. St. Athens we were at? Yeah, yeah. And he had to sing. Remember his suitcase? I can't <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but that summed him up. Oh. And I remember, you know, no one wants to sing. No one wants that initiation to sing in front of everyone. And we was in at RAF St. Athens and I can remember him needing to sing and he didn't care. Just pulled up his stool, stood on his chair and he just sung in front of everyone. And I was like, you know what? This is going to be... This could be a really, really, really good signing. And obviously, for Swansea at the time, it, it proved to be a very good signing. But, you know, that was probably one of the... <clears throat> it was an interesting pre-season for me because I think I'd come off the back of quite a positive year and yeah. certainly a positive end of year. And I think, to be honest with you, I think that probably... It made me but broke me at the same time because I think the expectation that I found on my chest the year later... I probably couldn't handle it and I think that probably had a negative impact on my performances for that year 
in that probably what led to me ultimately being released at the end of my end of my second year. And you're talking about the expectation there. Maybe people would have saw, seen you score the winning goals in those yeah. last two games. Um, so their expectation, but expectation on yourself as yeah. well, because you carry that thinking, I'm a fucking good player here, 100%. and I'm an important player for this team. Yeah. And I think you started the season, didn't I you? I did. On right wing, and yeah. then you know Leon, Leon then yeah. wormed his way, the little rat. Yes, he did indeed. Into into your spot. Yeah. Um, so a tough period. Very tough period, and you know I, I, <clears throat> the frustration as well was I was really enjoying my time at the club. Not just football-wise, but where I was living um, with my two young boys, I absolutely loved the area and really, really didn't want to leave. But I was also conscious of actually, you know what? I could see that Brits was doing really well, and Brits was now, you know, a fantastic player all along anyway. And I was probably always a little bit of a tinge in the back of my mind of actually, how the hell am I keeping Neil Britton out of the team? It can't be right. But then I was probably always thought to myself, yeah, but he's not a right winger. Yeah. He doesn't want to be out on the wing, central of the pitch is where he needs to be. And I didn't know he was a centre midfielder, yeah. you know, because I'd come in and obviously Kenny liked the bigger guys in there, yeah. thank God. Um, <laughs> but I saw him as a right winger, yeah. do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Whereas you were hoping, fucking get him in the get middle. Him in the middle. <laughs> get him in the middle, because I knew, I knew he was a threat to me and I knew he was a threat to my position. And ultimately, in the end, that that did come true and that he took my he took my spot. But I guess there was always something in the back of my mind that thought, well, you know what? The way I play, my style of play, even if it is someone that's an impact player coming off the bench, I would fit that mould for probably for any club. Um, but ultimately, you know what? We, we got to the playoff final. We lost to Barnsley. And unfortunately, that with me, along with probably Roberto, probably served as the biggest one at the time. That was when the, the journey sadly came to an end. But certainly, you know, didn't want to be leaving the club at that time. If we take it back, Fobs, you mentioned starting off at Norwich at a yeah. young age, breaking through. What was, what was that like for you? Were you in the same youth team as the likes of Daz Way, Craig Bellamy? I was. So if you look at Craig, um, myself and Craig were together from under 11s all the way through to the first team, really. So, you know, there was nine of us that went through from under 12s to get pro contracts, which I don't think you'll find that scenario very much in football now, yeah. where they stick together that long. And certainly me now being an academy coach back at Norwich, I can't envisage that's going to be the case with me, say, with the under-12s I'm just, responsible just for. Just a good group that just you Just a have. really good group. You know, you had myself, uh, Robert Green, obviously Craig, Chris Llewellyn, Darren Kenton, Drew Broughton, just to name a few that, you know, went on to have yeah. good careers. And obviously Craig Bellamy, Chris Llewellyn, two Welsh internationals as well off the back of that. Robert Green, England international goalkeeper. I think he's only just been released by Huddersfield. So some really good players that, that managed to come through. But it was... It was a real surreal moment in time for me because I'd probably, I'd be honest with you, I'd been kicked out of Norwich um, probably two months before I made my debut. Right. And I was a bit of a rebel, a bit of a little shit, to be honest with you. Off the streets of London. Um, I had a tough upbringing in London as well. Um, Mum and Dad did the best for me that they could, but ultimately I had that initial council estate upbringing where I had to fight for everything. And then I found myself in this football domain where I've got a coach being really demanding of me and saying, Forbes, you must do this and Forbes, you must do that. Like, who the hell do you think you're talking so to? So you're carrying that little bit of a chip on your shoulder Massively. from that council estate. So living with mum and dad. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. good upbringing in, in, at yeah. home. At home, yeah. But just on the outside of that school and stuff like that. Yeah. Just tough. And you, you knew you had to be tough yourself. I had to be tough myself. And, you know, it was one of them you had to be prepared. A lot of it was a front. But you had to be prepared to put that front on and be prepared to fight for yourself to survive. And if at any point... Where I was growing up in Northwest London, if at any point you you showed a little inkling where someone can get at you, 
they'd be after you. So you couldn't be like that. And it was a case of if anyone spoke down to you when you were at school or in your estate, you had to put that front on. Even if you ended up running in the end, you still had to put the front on. And I found that going into the football bubble, people talking to me the way that some kids on the street would, and I only had one coping mechanism to fight fire with fire. Yeah. And ultimately I realised quite quickly that's not that's not the way to be. Unfortunately, you know, I had a situation where as I said, I did get kicked out and I was told uh, that was after I was quite, well, rude to my manager, a chap called Dave Stringer, a Norwich who'd managed, who'd played for Norwich for years, who'd managed Norwich City first team, and here he was, you know, helping out the youth team. And I can remember he came up to me last league game of the season. He came up to me and said, Forbes, if you do this, this, this and this, you'll win us the game. Yeah. And I gave him the thumbs up. Off I went, did the complete opposite and put it in the top corner. And I went over to the dugout and said, I'll do it my way, thanks, Dave, and bowed. Yeah. And I'm like, what, what are you doing? And you could see this guy was livid. So we go in the dressing room afterwards, it's all going off, lads, celebrating, as you can imagine. Um, and Dave came up to me and he said straight, you ever do that to me again, I'll make sure you never play in a yellow and green shirt. And I went, oh, what, well, I'm only playing in the blue away kit, am I, Dave? That works for me. And off I went, and that was, that was the final one. Yeah. Got kicked out. Um, but fortunately at the time, the first team manager, Mike Walker, and the main youth team manager, Keith Webb, saw something in me. And Mike Walker basically spoke to me and said, you've got six weeks of pre-season. I'm now dealing with you. Um, if you don't ship up over that six-week period, you will be out for good. Um, and fortunately, I did. And he gave me my debut after um, really the second league game of the season when three or four of the lads had got caught out on a Thursday night, right. got suspended. I got on the bench, um, didn't look back. Didn't look back. So a fortunate... Um, set of situations but yeah it got me it got me my debut you needed do you think you needed a manager who just had that a little bit of awareness of where you'd come from um you know you didn't like authority yeah. so to challenge you in a, in, a, in a way that a teacher might yeah was the wrong way to go about it completely the wrong way to go about it and if it was finding that manager that knew when it's time to give me a kick up the arse and put an arm around me. And at that time, with those sort of situations, I needed more of an arm around me than anything else. Um, but ultimately as well, though, that chip on the shoulder and being that character was what allowed me to achieve yeah. you know, what I achieved. Because that drive, yeah? That drive. And without that, I don't think I survived in the game for as long as I did. Well, I think you always had that for, obviously, like you're talking about Leon taking your place in the team. I, I remember times where Kenny would name his team on a Friday mm -hmm. and... No player in that squad would take it worse than you yeah. if you weren't in the team. Yeah. So you'd kick some cones and stuff like that. Yeah. Was that, you know, it's obviously disappointment you think you mm -hmm. should be playing. Yeah. Is it also that little bit of maybe insecurity where you feel, fucking hell, these other boys now, you feel that everyone's looking at you, don't you? Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're not. Yeah. But you think, oh, I've got to, I've got to make, a, make up a little act now to, to, to show how disappointed I am. Totally, totally. You've hit the nail on the head and it was... It was, it was one of them, right, I need to let the manager know that I'm disappointed. But how does that disappointment manifest itself? And with me, because of my upbringing, yeah. it was, right, what can I kick? <laughs> what yeah. can I throw? Um, and I think you see it with certain managers now on the sideline, kicking the water bottles and things like that. I think that was me. Um, I'm very much a heart on my sleeve kind of guy. And those situations that I face where I didn't necessarily know how to really handle it, now, from a coaching point of view, it's, all right, get your head down, keep working, you'll prove your worth. At the time, I probably hadn't faced a situation where I'd been dropped. So I didn't know what to do. Um, if I look at my time at Norwich, more often than not, I was playing or in and around the squad. And certainly at Norwich, 
there was more experienced pros than me, so I almost understood why I might not be picked every week. Then at Luton, other than when I did my cruise shirt and missed eight months, I played every single week without fail, whatever position, because I was one of the bigger players. So I probably didn't have the coping strategy to deal with those situations when Kenny dropped me. And also, to be honest with you, it was probably frustration for myself because actually deep down inside, I'm probably like, yes, the right decision, Gaffer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know, admitting that to yourself at the time, that probably, you know, that's probably my own frustrations, my own pent up anger at myself at not performing to where I know I should be, which is what led to me getting dropped. And it's just one big vicious circle. You're talking there about the experienced players at Norwich. Yeah. I don't know if you would have been in direct competition with mm-hmm. someone like Bellas of the same age growing up yeah. for, for that first team shirt. But then when you get into the first team, real experience in there, yeah. just just good for an upbringing and, and that good first team environment for you. Oh, it was the first couple of weeks. It was nice. <clears throat> it was quite pretty, and you know, you know, I made my debut against Wolverhampton Wanderers. Played twenty minutes. Oh, I was all fine. You quickly realise, though, you've got that senior pro next to you that's almost going to start being demanding of you now when there's a certain expectation. It's not fluffy academy football anymore. It's not development football anymore. We've got points to play for. So you better do your job. And I quickly, quickly, quickly learned that actually I can't conduct myself in the way that I did as a youth team player. Yeah. Um, and I need to understand and know my roles and responsibilities for the team in and out of possession. Otherwise, I'm going to get nailed. And I was, you know, playing next to and around some real big players, you know, and a big friend of yours, big Ewan Roberts. And, you know, probably two years before, I was sat at home watching Ewan. Sat at home with my dad watching Ewan. And I can remember watching Ewan in a, playing for Wolves in a derby against West Brom. Massive game. And I think I think Ewan might have got a hat-trick in that game and was like, wow, what a player he is. Yeah. And then I found myself a couple of years later in the same team, in the same dressing room, in the same squad as someone that, for me, is a living, a living legend. You know, it was an amazing, amazing experience, and certainly one for me that you learn a lot very, very quickly from those senior pros. And I think those early learning situations definitely make me a better coach now. I understand. Back in those days, the money that was in football wasn't wasn't what it is now. No, nowhere near. But, nowhere near. But still, I'm sure decent wages yeah. and stuff. So how do you go? You know, you can almost empathise with these young players now from that tough upbringing, mm-hmm. growing up in London, um, council estate, and then you go into the football world where, you know, you get paid a decent amount yeah. of money. You're in Norwich enjoying, that's a good night that's out a good in Norwich night out. as well. It's a very good night out. You know, <laughs> how do you look back now and think, did you cope with it well? How did you cope with it? I didn't cope with it well at all. And, you know, I have no embarrassment in saying it. You know, you've gone from earning £47.50 a week as a youth team player Getting the day, getting the first team, make your debut, and you've earned two years' salary just from your bonus and your appearance money. And you're like, right, lads, we're out. All drinks are on me. And that was probably me up until 18, 19, living the life, enjoying yeah. the money, enjoying the lifestyle, the, the cars, the clothes, and everything. And I'll be honest with you, it probably wasn't until I was about 20, when 2021, when my, my first son arrived. And then that was a realization of, whoa there's a bit more to this now lads you're going to have to look after this little monster now yeah. for the foreseeable future but until up until then I wouldn't say I was able to handle the, the finances that came my way and no help zero help I was just going to say absolutely no one advised you on from my agent to mum and dad advised me as best they could but they're living in London I'm living in Norfolk there's no one to really keep an army um and I think that would probably be the biggest disappointment and that no one at Norwich at the time helped me, guided me and said, why don't you do this with your money? Why don't you do that? Um, 
because ultimately I think that's really, really key to any young player coming in because you can go from nothing to something in the heartbeat. Is that something that you do now? Because um, I don't think we've touched on it. Your role now, you, you can explain exactly what you do yeah. working for Norwich. Um, are the players that you take, I think you take the and the 12s or yeah. that, that younger age group, yeah. so it doesn't quite no. relate to them. But do you try and help out the players that are a little bit older? Yeah, definitely. I think my, my main role now is what they call the foundation phase lead. So I'm in charge of the day-to-day running of the under 9s, 10s, 11s and 12s um, within the club. So giving them the best start on their ladder uh, of their football journey. But you know, you're at the training ground every day, you're surrounded by the under 23s, under 18s, under 16s, and the amount of contact time we have now with these players, seven to eight hours a week, you're surrounded by players all the time. But yeah, I am, I'm brutal with them. I tell them exactly what to expect, um, exactly what to do, because the reality is I've made every conceivable mistake that they could make. Yeah, I've done it, and even with the littlies, you know, I call them the baby, even with the babies, I try and, not give them too much detailed information because it's so far away from where they're going to be at this moment and so far away at this moment in time. But it's relevant that they know certain things and it's really key that the parents know certain things because the parents are looking at their son going, yeah, he's going to be a pro. Cash cow. Yeah, some of them do. Some of them are real uh, realistic and they know that actually, you know what, let's just enjoy the journey for however long it lasts. If my boy gets anything from it, great. If he doesn't, so be it. But it is... I'm all on educating all the boys as best as we physically can so that when those performances arise, when the finances arise, they're in a better position to deal with it than I certainly was. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just a, it's a weird thing because you're talking about parents and you're talking about players. Mm-hmm. You can give them as much advice as you can. You can tick a box if you like. Yeah. But ultimately, you've been there, I've been there. Players don't really care. No. You know, I, it's such a hard thing to do because I'm looking at it now thinking these players they need advice mm-hmm. but if they're not willing to listen you know because when that money's coming in yeah. you, you, you're you not looking to when you're 35 or 40 oh. and that money is not coming in at the time oh whatever mate who's this yeah. old boy preaching totally and best the best story of that <laughs> there's um, a chap called Peter Grant I think Grant he's now he might be part of the Scottish um, national management team at Fulham, he was um, at Norwich, centre midfielder, played for Celtic. Um, you know, he had Bayern Munich. I can remember he had Bayern Munich in his testimonial, full house, proper legend. Yeah. And I can remember me turning up at the training ground in my brand new BMW at 17, 18. He absolutely roasted me. And I remember him being on the coach, just going off at me. And I'm sort of sitting there going, whatever, Granty, yeah, whatever, mate, good one. And I can remember him saying, you need to start saving now because 35 will come round before you know it. And as you've quite rightly said there, I've gone, shut up, mate. In my head, I didn't say it to his face. Yeah. I had too much respect for him to say it to his face. But at the time, I'm going, I'm 18. 35 is a lifetime away, mate. For now, I'm going to enjoy it. But he was so right. And you don't plan for what's going to happen. You don't plan for the what next. And I think, probably looking at what I do now, I wish I'd probably done my coaching qualifications when I was playing. People advised me to do that. Oh, now nah, I'll keep playing forever. And then before you know it, a few knee injuries down the line, you have to quit sooner than you expect, and then you're almost playing catch-up with some. But that would be the key thing for me now that I do say to a lot of players is understand that your career is going to be short. And if you're not one of the fortunate ones that gets into the Premier League and earns the multi-millions that allows you to have a 35-year age-plus career where you can survive on that money or you can find a second career to do, it's tough. 
it is really tough. What's what's been the toughest thing? I mean, after after Swansea, you went on to Blackpool. Mm-hmm. Who else? Millwall. <laughs> Blackpool, Millwall, then Grimsby. Yeah, yeah. So good career, and then it comes to an end. What was the hardest part for you in, in dealing with retirement? Because I, I didn't realise, Forbes, you had, had a quick look before we met up. Yeah. Um, you, you've been quite open with mm-hmm. talking about depression yeah. and stuff yeah. from retiring. Yeah. What, what was that period like for you? Was it something instant? No, no, it wasn't instant. I think it was a culmination of several things, to be honest with you. I think first and foremost, having my career taken away from me as opposed to making the decision to quit. So I basically had nine knee operations. I was at Grimsby playing really well in a team that was struggling, but I was the old experienced head, helping the younger players around. Um, knee goes, operation number nine, oh, God's sake. Surgeon turns around to me and says, look, if you want any quality in life with your kids, you must quit playing. The cynic in me, or the, what word am I looking for? The competitive side of me, I'll prove you wrong, mate. I'm gonna get back playing. Yeah. And I did. And then I got back playing, was playing well again, um, albeit in absolute agony from the knee. And got back playing, then broke my leg in training. Really, really simple, complete accident, broke my leg in training. The actual break didn't get diagnosed straight away because Grimsby's infrastructure at the time from a a medical point of view wasn't too great. Um, And then it was basically uh, the broken leg. I couldn't get back to full fitness from the knee, really. I was only able to train one day a week, so I was almost training on a Friday, playing on a Saturday. I couldn't do anything again till probably the next Thursday. Yeah. And it just got too much, so then, you know, uh, Grimsby got relegated. Um, the club was like, look, we can't afford you. So it was put on gardening leave. I ended up being back in Norwich. Um, still getting paid by Grimsby, but back in Norwich. And then the decision was made, well, look, I had to quit playing. And then it was, you sat at home, you're doing enough. I'd done that since I was 16. I'd gone into a, train, into a training ground every day. I'd got my boots on every day, roughly. I'd played football every day and all of a sudden, You've been told by some guy in a suit that you can't do it anymore. Mm. Not my choice. It, no, it didn't work. It's, and you're also going back to the your, your upbringing, chip on your shoulder, don't like being told what to do. Yeah. And now yeah. this guy is telling you this you guy can't play football. Me. And ultimately, again, similar to with the, the being dropped by Kenny, I knew he was right. I knew the surgeon was right. And then I've got that battle of, with Kenny, yeah, you might be right, Kenny, but I'm going to prove you wrong with how I train. This guy's telling me you can't play football anymore. I know he's right because I can't get up my stairs. So what do I do? I'm at a complete and utter loss. I then had a situation where um, the wife wanted, always wanted to be um, a nurse. So she was doing her nursing degree. So I was basically the house husband every day. And I felt a bit worthless. Yeah, I was looking, I was being a good dad to my kids. Um, and you know, I've got three boys. One's now 17, 14 and nine. And I was being a good dad to them. I was getting the lunches done. I was doing the school run. House was spotless. Tea was cooked every day when they got back from school. And that was great to have that opportunity and be around them for that long. But I felt like something was missing. I really, really felt like something was missing. And then slowly you find that situation where I actually can't be asked to get up. Can't be asked to do this, can't be asked to do that. I literally felt completely and utterly worthless. Then went on to play for a local team called Lowestoft Town just outside um, Norwich. And then you have the realisation if you've got these young 21, 22 year olds flying past you. Yeah. And I'm like, where's he gone? But speed was my game. <laughs> that was what made me me. I haven't got that anymore. Then adapted my game, ended up playing more of a central midfield role. But I just knew it weren't right. And slowly what you find is you are just getting to a situation where you're a shadow of your former self. I think that then had a negative impact on myself and the wife. And then we split up. And then I found myself literally 
where's my life gone? Mm. Not playing football, can't put my kids to bed every night. What's the point? And then you do get that. And lots of players have said that they've gone through it as well. And it was literally, I was at a stage where literally, what what is my life about? What is my life worth? And it's a real strange story. A bit deep now, mate, but it's a real strange story in that I was sat, lovely apartment just outside Norwich, um, sat there. And it was like, right, I could quite easily end this now. I could quite easily say goodbye to this life I'm living. And then my, my eldest boy phoned me. And it was like, what are you ringing me for now? And he told me the most non-funny story ever yeah. of something that had gone on at school. And it was pathetic. I didn't find it funny. Even he said at the end, yeah, I guess you had to be there to find <laughs> it funny, Dad. And we sort of laughed it off. But it was almost like that was a sign in that something told him to give me a call then. It probably sounds really stupid. Just snapped you out of it. But snapped me out of it. And then I realised, actually, you know what? Nah, I have got a reason to still be here. I have got a worth. And then it sort of, you know, I got myself back on track somewhat. But it could have quite easily could have quite easily gone the other way and then slowly probably I'd say for the last two and a half three years I've slowly been on a on an upward spiral that's allowed me to be to be around now and I'd say I'm in a in a really good space now well I think the awareness of you know mental health uh, depression is is growing yeah um but it but it's that tab- taboo subject if you like mm. you know you look at football players who have to retire I think the stats are quite staggering in yeah. terms of uh, divorce rate, which mm-hmm. you've been through, yeah. is one in three players will ha- will have a divorce yeah. after retirement. One in four will go bankrupt within yeah. two years or, or something like that. Yeah. So there's there's a huge issue there. Yeah. And how do players cope with coming out of that bubble where financially you are probably earning the biggest wage you will ever, ever earn. earn? You are living in a world where uh, people will. Mic, yeah. Pe- people will always know you yeah. for that period of time between mm-hmm. 18 and 30. Yeah. So when you're 65, people will know. Adrian Forbes used to play football for yeah. Norwich or Swansea. Yeah. Or Wayne Taylor-Jones used to play football. Yeah. You know, how, how do you cope with being out of that bubble? It's so, so difficult. It's t- it is really difficult. And I think probably the lucky thing for me yeah. was the fact that I was living in Norwich. So by living in Norwich and it being such a small area... Wherever you go, someone knows you. Wherever you go, someone recognises you. And actually, sometimes that it was just like, oh, brilliant, yeah. It's just, just a, a reminder of who you I say used to be. You're still that person. But I think it's a really important reminder. And I think for me to end up, I went up, went in working for um, a company called the Community Sports Foundation, which is Norwich City's recognised charity. I was working at Car Road every day. Um, I was in an office where everyone knew who I was and I was a little bit hero worshipped in there. So it sounds horrible, but I was getting my ego massaged every day, which was a massive help. And that actually made me realise, you know what? Yeah, you're you're right. You are a good guy. You you do have something about you. You do have a lot to offer. And ultimately as well, you know, the the lads that I coach now, they're probably the ones that are around, say, the under under 13s, 14s, probably didn't realise, probably yeah, probably didn't realise at the time what a help they were for me to deal with that situation because when they come into the training ground, are we working with you today, Forbesy? Yeah, yeah, get in there. That actually, that in itself made me realise, actually, you know what, you have got something to offer. And ultimately it's that coaching world um, that keeps me going and hopefully, you know, I can be in this world for as long as I can. And, you know, as you say, you're never going to earn the, the money that you earned when you were a pro, that's for sure, unless you get to the real, real top of the game, which is not going to be easy. But it, it's not an easy journey when that football world is finishing. For me, whether it be the PFA, Premier League, Football League, EFL, 
need to do more to help those players plan for when the football world comes to an end. Well, if you could pinpoint one specific thing that has been the most difficult for you from retirement, would it be missing the adulation? Would it be financially uh, stepping out into into a pitch in front of people and performing, doing what you love, or just training every day with the lads? I think it's probably it's probably two things to be honest with you. The the sense of worth of being that footballer yeah. and you know you are worth something to someone, whether it be the lads or it be the manager. And I think knowing at the end of the week you're going to be going out on a stadium in front of however many thousand people that's going to watch you play. And you're even if you're in League Two, League One, Championship or the Premiership, you're obviously good at what you do to have achieved to get where you've got to. And I think that adulation that you get and people wanting to be part of you signing that autograph, you can't replicate that in anything else you do. And I think when you know that's just taken away from you like that, very, very hard to deal with. Very, very hard to deal with. I, I think for me personally, financially, it's that change yeah. where, of course, if you're able to save a little bit, you, you, mm -hmm. you spoke about Premier League players and if they've earned, not all Premier League players keep no. hold of their money. No. You know, but, but you save what you can. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's dealing with that change of earning that big wage, mm -hmm. whatever it may be, but it's relative to it's at relative. the time. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't mean, I've never earned the money of 15, 20 grand a week or, mm -hmm. or something like that. Mine's fluctuated quite a bit from coming to Swansea from non-leagues yeah. or low wage, going to Norwich, back-to-back -back promotions with yeah. wage increases. increases so yeah. I'm earning more than I should. Yeah. Going up to Scotland then and it, it's going mm -hmm. up and down. And I remember, I think I left Hibs um, I was I went to Hibs for maybe fifteen hundred pound a week, mm -hmm. good wage. Yeah. you know, a good wage for yeah. for a man in his late twenties. And then, for one reason or another, things not working out there. So relegation, didn't play much. Couple of injuries. Go to Falkirk then for five hundred pound a week. Mm -hmm. So it's a third year wage, and you're thinking, fucking hell, five hundred pound a yeah. week. This is this is a bit of a joke. Yeah. After you finish playing football, try finding a job that pays you £500 a week regular, yeah. you know? Yeah, it doesn't happen. So you need, it's about getting players to realise you need to snap out of yeah. that bubble that mm -hmm. is just so false yeah. in the real world, isn't it? It is, and I, I think I was probably lucky from that point of view in that, obviously I had the, the Luton wage, which was just, the Luton wage was just stupid. Yeah. And that ultimately ended up with the club going into administration because it was an astronomical wage that we were on as a group of players. And the win bonus, I mean, we were in League Two at Luton and the win bonuses were £825 a win if we're in the top four. We're in the top four every week. So 825 a win and £500 an appearance for every single player yeah. in League Two. No wonder you end up in administration. <laughs> How um, do you sleep at night for? Oh, so you was, know, you, know you killed that club. I was, yeah, uh, but I did sleep well at the time. Trust me, I had a, <laughs> I had a huge bed that the bonuses are paid for. Nice so. goose down pillows. <laughs> it was lovely. <laughs> so, but you, you're right in what you say, and I think the the fortunate or unfortunate thing with for me was probably leaving Swansea, going to Blackpool. I had to take a cut. Then I went back up wages wise because Kenny. Um, Kenny gave me a contract at Mill, which was probably a little bit of, yeah, you deserve that wage, but I'm going to give you a bit more because I stitched you at Swansea. Yeah. Um, so he did. And then all of a sudden, I went on loan to Grimsby, so still on my, my London Millwall wage. And then I signed for Grimsby permanently, and it was a vast cut that I had to take for yeah. a small lead to club. But as you quite rightly say there, it, it, is, it is relevant. And when you've got 
if you look at my situation now where I've got, you know, I've still got the three kids to support, excuse me, no longer with the mum. And, you know, when you go through that period of time, that in itself, when you split up with your missus, that in itself has taken a, a massive toll. But, you know what, I look at it now, 39, and, you know, I'm going to try my best to make sure that, A, you get to a situation where you you, you you have your second life without that wage and you reinvent yourself, etc. So now it's just a case of, you know what, be as sensible as I can from now till the day that I do have to literally retire and hang up training bibs and the whistle and everything and, you know, see where I am then. I spoke to, um, talking about that chat I had with, with Big Bale mm-hmm. and discussing, you know, his upbringing as a black man in yeah. London racism that he would have encountered going over to I think Lithuania, Lithuania. where he suffered fucking <laughs> oh, unbelievable racism yeah, which yeah. almost meant that anything he suffered in this country Fine. was secondary yeah what, what was that like for you oh I was the same in London you know it was it wasn't as prominent in London because it was quite a diverse area that I lived in and it was you know a 50 50 split of white and black yeah um, but then you go to Norwich and you know you're up in Norwich and they ain't seen any of me before up in Norwich. Any black person they'd seen in Norwich is on the telly. Yeah. So they're looking at me and wondering, are you, are you actually real? I've, I've never seen one of you in real life. And I can remember literally one of my first nights out and this girl is just staring at me and I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm in here, aren't I? So I go over and have a chat with her as you do. She shit herself. Really? She couldn't have ran any quicker away from me. And it was literally, she was looking at me like I was the novelty act. And I quite quickly... She thought you were going to rob her. Yeah, she probably did. That's probably why she ran off. But I probably would have caught her. I was that quick. But <laughs> you're right. And that was, at the time, that was that was the mentality, I think, of, you know, a black guy in Norfolk at the time. And even, you know, during the game, he went to many, many, many a ground. I can remember being at, you know, playing for Norwich against Grimsby. Oh, just constant stick. Constant, constant abuse. Um, the monkey chants... Um, no one actually threw me a banana, but I can remember going to take a corner and I can remember someone shouting, wait there a minute, I'll go and get you a banana if you hang on a second. And you just, you laugh it off because you don't know what else to do. And there's still this horrible mentality with the football, whether it be whichever league it is, you know, uh, a fan can racially abuse you, but don't you dare react. Because yeah, yeah. you react, you'll be the one that's in trouble. Well, actually, no. By no means am I saying that a player should get away with a reaction, but someone needs to sit up and say, of course he's going to react to it. It's human, yeah. Yeah, of course he's going to react to it. You know, I can remember, I can remember playing for Millwall, actually. Um, and I will say that Millwall will always have that stigma. But my God, the club try their socks off to try and deal with it. And yeah. the resources and the money and the people they throw at it to try and stop what does go on at a den um, is massive. And I was part of that when I was there for 18 months. But I don't think it's ever going to change. And I can remember scoring a goal. Um, it wasn't me, I think it was Trezor Candol that was on loan from Leeds, scored a goal, crew away, we needed the win, um, but we actually got a draw, Trez scored ahead in the last minute. And I remember a, I remember a fan saying, fantastic finish Trez, now fuck off back to where you come from. And I remember running back to the halfway line thinking, really? We've just scored an equalising goal for your team, yeah. All right, a black player's just scored that. And that's what you said to him? It just didn't resonate in my didn't resonate in my head at all. And we we obviously go mad room with the crowd and then that said, and you just sort of saunter back to the halfway line because you can't believe that your team's fans would, would say that and would do that. But unfortunately, you know, that is the nature of life. I'm not going to say the nature of the beast and nature of football because it's it's not as prominent as it used to be. But, you know, it is something that unfortunately as a footballer, you have to learn to deal with. 
have to learn to let it go in one ear and out the other ear. However, fight for it and fight to try and make it better. And certainly for me now, that is something that I'm openly trying to do with my role that I have with um, the Premier League, which I'll touch on in a little while, with the Premier League, that to give more, to make it better, I do genuinely believe we need more black, Asian, minority, ethnic people at the forefront of the game, where they're seen. And I think until that happens, you know, it's probably not going to change too much. Talk, talk about that then. What, what, well, what is your role? My role is I was... Um, I'm on something with the Premier League called the Elite Coaches Apprenticeship Scheme, which is um, a four-year programme funded, so it's a fully funded scheme for me, um, which has allowed me to go into Norwich's academy full-time. You do basically a two-year um, degree around loads of different aspects of football, but not necessarily coaching, everything that would go along it, so alongside it, so coping strategies, time management, um, how you deal with players, etc., etc. It's two years of a degree where you do certain assignments around it and then two years of implementing what you've learned um, within the, within that course out in the field. So that's obviously from a coaching point of view with me. But the reason I got on that course was the Premier League have identified that there isn't enough black, Asian, minority, ethnic people yeah. in the game. So they put together this scheme and it basically gets you a fully funded opportunity at an academy. And then once you're in there, it's down to you to make the best of that opportunity you've okay. been given. So I was one of the first black people to be given that chance. And that was definitely turned my life around. I think when I went on there now, I'm just about to start year three. When I went on the course three years ago, that's probably, I'd say, right in the middle of when I was really suffering from a depression point of view. And actually, you know, that course definitely helped me get myself Giving you a focus, yeah? Yeah, and you know, I, I struggled with the academic side of it, doing degree and referencing and all that sort of stuff. I'm like, what the hell is this? But I got there. Yeah. I got there in the end after you know two years and a lot of help, a lot of support from the mentors that I had within that scheme. I did get there in the end, and you know, now I'm working, you know, with the Premier League now, doing certain things where, you know, hopefully we can go a little way to a bit of a shift in the the dynamic and a shift in people's mindset around what you know a black person looks like in the game because the reality is yeah we're a different color to everyone else but we're still good at what we do and we still have a lot a lot to offer so over in america i think it's american football you've got the rooney rule yeah. is that right yeah so is that something you'd like implemented over here you know in a football sense that there should be a black or um a black person should be on that list of candidates uh, i've got mixed views on that i think i'm very much Get that black person, male, female, whoever it is, get them on that list, yes, and give them the opportunity to have an interview. And I think having the Rooney rule, it gets that person through the door. But ultimately, they've still got to be the right candidate. Yeah, yeah. They've still got to be the right person. They've still got to have the relevant qualifications. They've still got to have the relevant experiences to get that job opportunity. So, yeah, I've got, I'm, I'm mixed on it. I think it's brilliant because it gets someone through the door. But then ultimately, that person still needs to interview well, I'm a big believer in that. And if you interview well and you were the right person for the job, then I'd like to think you would get the job. Having said that, you look at the amount of people, the amount of teams there are um, in professional football and the amount of black managers there are out there, you've got to say there is a little bit of an issue somewhere where something isn't quite right, where people aren't being given a chance. It, it's that balance, isn't it? Because I saw something recently. Joey Barton's just took the Fleetwood, Fleetwood. job. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure why the comparison was there, um, but Sol Campbell was... Uh, the, this argument was how is Saul Campbell not getting that job mm -hmm. because he's qualified pro licence I, I think I think he's got his pro I think so but the fact is Saul Campbell 
if he goes for that interview, just might not impress. Just because he saw Campbell at what he's achieved as a player, yeah. he's obviously got that pro license. Yes. But it doesn't. If he doesn't fit the mold, he doesn't fit the mold. And, and that is. And I don't want. I don't want this to come across like I'm poo-pooing what. No, what but it's help, an important it's, topic. It, to, is a, it is important in that. You know, um, I spoke to Chris Hewitt a long time ago, and he's someone that, from my days when he was the manager at Norwich, he's someone that I built a strong relationship with, as with his assistant. Paul Nevin, who was my academy manager, head of coaching when I first came into um, the academy, and he was part of the process of getting me on this scheme with the Premier League because he worked there at the time. And that's one of the things that Chris said to me, you know, make sure when those opportunities do arise, A, you've got the relevant qualifications, and B, you've got the relevant experiences. And I look at my own journey now, and, you know, I've gone from working for the playing background, um, A license qualified, um, hopefully that should be signed off in the next few weeks. Um, I've worked for a community foundation where you've got one minute you've got a group of 10 who want to be there the next minute you're taking a group of players of 30 and probably 10 of them want to be there the rest is just cheap babysitting how do you deal with that dynamic I'm now at the academy where I'm coaching with under 9s 10s 11s 12s 14s 15s that I've worked with hopefully at some point I'll get the opportunity to go 18 to 23 so that when I do go for that interview whenever the time is right no one can say to me, you've not got the relevant experience. No one can say to me, you've not got the relevant qualifications. And then that's when I can probably look around and say, well, hang on a minute. I've got all that and you're still not giving me the job. Hey, now we've got an issue. Now I don't think it's right. But there are managers that are black out there that have all those experiences and have the relevant qualifications. But for some reason, they're still not getting through the door. What the answer is, I don't know. But hopefully in time, you know, there will be a shift in that dynamic. But what we do ultimately need as well is other than Chris Hewton, no disrespect to anyone else out there, a black manager to be really successful yeah. in his own right. And I think once that success is seen, and a lot of people are talking about Chris this year because he's kept kept Brighton in the Premiership, we need another two or three yeah. that can do that. And then all of a sudden, I think people might sit up and go, actually, you know what? Can we be the next club that has that black manager that really is successful for us as well? One other role we haven't discussed, Forbesy, mm -hmm. on the microphone, Carroll Road. <laughs> hey, you've, been t you've got to look after that voice these days, haven't you? Stadium announcer. How do you know about that? Yes, that's a weird one as well. You know, um, for the little kid that was brought up, on the, brought up on the streets of London that used to talk like this, you know what I'm saying, bruv, and all that. And now all of a sudden, here I am hosting events for the football club and ultimately, as you say, announcing the teams onto, onto Carroll Road. It's a little bit strange how that came about in that um, there was a situation at Carroll Road where there was a Christmas party. Took my kids to the Christmas party and the guy that was going to be on the mic doing a Q&A with the players and something else, he got taken ill. Yeah. So I'm quite an extrovert myself. I was like, oh, give me the mic, I'll do it. Just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. And it actually went well. Chief executive of Norwich at the time, a chap called David McNally, got wind of it and sort of pushed it. So I did a couple more things, but didn't think anything of it. And then it was probably going back three years now, just before they got promoted to the Premiership, they had Ipswich at home in the playoff semi-final. Yeah. So I might, at the time, working for the club's charity, I was based at Carra Road, where obviously the chief exec and all the main people of the club would work. And he pulled me one day and said, I want you on the pitch before the Ipswich game, um, calling out the teams and getting the crowd going. And I went, now nah, you're right, Dave. He went, no, I don't think you understand. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. And Dave was quite a strong character then. You just saw, oh, okay, Dave, no problem, I'll do it. And I'm thinking, shit, I can't do that. What the hell am I going to do on a microphone in front of 27,000 fans? Yeah. It can't be for real. So 
a rocker on the day in a blue suit. We're going to play against Ipswich and I've got a blue suit on. You're like, that's your first own goal. You complete an idiot. I'm getting ripped by everyone. Didn't even need to be in a suit. Didn't need to be that posh, but I'd never done it. So yeah, I didn't yeah. know what to do. So then all of a sudden I've given this script of everything I've got to, got to say. And this, that and the other. And there I am, pitch side, making all these announcements and, uh, you know, like... Um, the Norwich City, Norwich, you know, on the ball city, as you yeah. all know, and I'm the one that had to get them going and get the three-two-one going before. And I'm thinking, if I get this three-two, if I get this go, and they just don't sing, I'm going to look like a complete and utter dick. So anyway, there I am in the centre circle, and there's a chap with me, Dave, doing it. And as I've gone in the middle of the pitch, I'm looking around for a bit of support from Dave. Dave's fucked off. So I'm literally looking round, and you've been to Carrow Road, you know, you know what it can be like there. You've played there, and you would have played in some big games there, and I'm like, oh my God. So I'm like, so I know, so I'm like, Carrow Road, are you ready to make some noise for the boys in yellow and green? Three, two, one. And it just went off. They love that chant, don't they? Yeah, and it just went off. But I'm still in the centre circle, like referee's blowing the whistle, yeah. and I'm still there with my microphone, sort of like, shit, what do I do now? Sky camera, the guy with Sky, like, get off the pitch, and I'm sprinting off the pitch. Brilliant, amazing. Got a buzz, yeah? Yeah, got a real good buzz off it, and that was it. Didn't think anything of it. Finished the day, announced a few goals. Um, that was it. Norwich get to the final, job done. Yeah. Weekend of the actual playoff final, I'm working for the academy and I'm away in Austria um, with my team in the tournament. And when I get when I actually land in Austria, I've missed about six or seven calls from the club. I was wondering what the hell's going on. Um, I was going to the playoff final on the bank holiday Monday um, to support the boys, as I would do anyway. Club had this idea, no, we want Forbes, we want you to get the crowd going at Wembley. Yeah. I'm like, come on, mate, I'm not being funny. I've done it in front of a few thousand at Car Road. I can't do it in front of 40,000 at Wembley. Y- you are. Ah, no, I can't do it. I'm in Austria. We'll chart you a plane. <laughs> oh, fuck. So there's no one getting out of it. And then they ring up saying, we can't get a slot, so we can't get your flight back. Oh, well, never mind. Then I realised, ah, actually, the flight I'm getting back normally anyway oh, yeah. is going to get me to Wembley on time so the next thing I know they're like right we'll get you a driver get me a car all this sort of stuff so I get to Stansted there's the guy with my name off I go and the next thing I know um, I'm pitch side with my microphone at Wembley getting the crowd going again same song and everything before we beat um, Middlesbrough 2-1 in in the playoff final and it's just sort of escalated from there so now there I am every home game on the pitch Announcing the teams out onto the pitch, certain other announcements, a half-time, half-time entertainment. Not something I ever thought I'd do, but <laughs> randomly really enjoy though, it. You know, you miss that buzz of playing. It gives you, it's different. Yeah. It's not the same. But at least you wake up on a Saturday morning, you've got to prepare for a game. Yeah. You know you're stepping foot on that pitch and yeah. you've, you've got to perform. You have, and it, it, you've hit the nail on the head. And a lot, not, not a lot of people would appreciate that. But it's that buzz of, you know, I'm by the pitch. So when the players are coming out for the warm-up, I'm there. When yeah. the players come in at half-time in the tunnel, <clears> I'm there. And it's the closest, really, other than being that first-team coaching staff member, would be manager, coach, goalkeeping coach, whatever it is, that's probably the closest kit man. It's probably the closest you're going to get to being around the lads at, at half-time or on a, on a match day. So... Yes, it's just been it's been brilliant to have the opportunity to do it, and you know we'll see if we can continue doing it for another couple of years. Last question, Forbes, That's because we've both got to go. We've got a big game <laughs> big to, game. to pl- uh, prepare for. This is the hardest question I'm going to ask you. Mm-hmm. It's going to be an emotional an- answer, I'm sure. Best night out, Norwich <laughs> or Wine Street in Swansea? Wine Street in Swansea. 
No-brainer. No-brainer. And I think... And Norwich is good. Norwich Norwich is a brilliant night out. And you know yourself, my man, down Tombland in Norwich. There's some great nights. Oh, mercy at the end of it. Mercy at the end of it. Um, you know, and now it's one, you know, bar 11 or Mantra, and I still go out clubbing thinking that I'm 19 instead of 39. But I think there's just something about Wine Street on a bank holiday. Oh, you can't beat it. And I think, you know, one of the best nights probably in my whole life that I've ever had was that promotion day when we literally got on the bus and we were literally rallied is we were drinking from Berry back to Swansea, six hours. Out in your tracksuits then? Out in the tracksuits and we were literally, literally straight down Wine Street and then we were down, then we went to a club called Crowbar till about yeah, four yeah. in the morning. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned that, um, the Wrexham game, the, the, <laughs> the, the World Premier Cup, Cup, the yeah. Premier Cup final. We were all still pissed. <laughs> <laughs> we were all still pissed on that Tuesday absolutely guaranteed um, the, the missus had absolutely roasted me because I got back eventually on the Sunday and I think we went training on the Monday and we were straight back out again after that turned up at the game Tuesday and we still managed to win but that night pff, unbelievable and I just think I've never seen a road like that where you drive up it and on a, in, on a normal day but by night it's shut and it's full I'd never come across that before it's amazing, isn't it? Never come like, across pe- that. People don't even understand. And I guess it's different because we, we played for Swansea. Yeah. That adulation is there. Yeah. We had our route. Yeah. Uh, by the time <laughs> I was there, you know, you'd start off in Revolution. Revolution. Pitcher yep. and piano. Yep. Uh, the, you know, the, the usual route. Mm-hmm. And you'd have your, we'd have our spot, have in, your spot in that pub as and well. no one goes in that spot. That's our spot. Don't you dare. If someone's there, then we're just slowly inching our way yep. until we dominate, dominate the area. Yeah, so true. And... You know what those, and I think as well, what made those nights better was, and you'll know yourself, when one was out, you were all out, and I can remember many a time Kenny Jacket would say, "What the fucking hell happened last night? Were you out?" And then everyone's put their hand up because literally, and he couldn't do anything because it was the whole group. But we probably got away with it because we were successful. Yeah. God forbid we were rubbish on the pitch on a Saturday. Yeah. But there wasn't a great deal Kenny could do because we were such a success. But yeah, one's out, you're all out. And definitely for me, no disrespect to Norwich, because I still live there now. That is what I class as my hometown. But yeah, Wine Street's a much I, better night out. I love Truns' story of, um, I think, Kenny, to start with asking, you know, what what the going out culture is like. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, do you feel that you go out too often? Yeah. And then Truns would say, no, I don't think so, Gaffer. You, you know, when do you go out? Well, on a Saturday night after a game. Yeah. We'll, we'll have an all day on a Sunday. Yeah. Um, go out Tuesday after a game. After a game. Uh, after, after training. training. And maybe we'll go out on Wednesday because it's student night. Yeah. <laughs> and he thought that was okay. He thought it was okay. And that, but that, and that, what Tron says there, that was spot on. And that's how it was. And I can, as I say, I can remember there was once, I don't know what game it was. And we pulled up at the Vetch and the gaffer's got on the mic. He's gone, right, lads, no fucking about tonight. Straight home. No problem, gaffer. Big game Tuesday, this, that, and the other. And we literally ambled off the bus. Everyone's got in their cars, taken their time, got in the cars, drove off. As soon as we saw Kenny's Merc go, everyone drove background, parked in the Vetch, changed in the car park, straight out. <laughs> and that was, it sounds horrible. And it, I say everyone knew we were out anyway. And that was the mentality of us as a group. And bless him. I think Kenny knew it as well, but as I say, we were successful and it was what we did and Tron sums it up perfectly. Three nights a week, we, we played hard <laughs> and we literally played hard on the pitch as well. <laughs> on Brilliant. that note, Forbesy, let's get out of here. The bridge in has been good to us. Been We've superb. had a couple of coffees, a bacon roll. Great bacon roll as well. Ready for the game? 
pre-match at its best, coffee and a bacon roll. Let's go and see how our stiff bodies cope with this match today. Top it's been one. a pleasure, my man. Thank you. Good to see you, Fozzie. Top man. There we go. Mr. Adrian Forbes, ladies and gentlemen. Big thank you to Forbesy for, for being honest, for talking about his struggles after retiring from, from playing. I think it gives a, an important insight into the life of a, a footballer after those boots are hung up. So big thanks to him. You'll all be glad to know he went on to score a hat-trick in the charity game. You'll be glad to know I went to score a second-half hat-trick driving out from centre-half, joining in with the attacks, uh, but all for a good cause. So Swans legends fighting against cancer. Uh, well done to those guys, raising money for a really good cause. Thanks again to the bridge in Hjangenech. Get yourselves down there for a beautiful Sunday roast or just, just any meal. The desserts there are divine. The coffee there is beautiful. So Bridgen, Hjangenech, thank you very much. Don't forget, as always, leave a review, subscribe, spread the word, leave a rating, whatever you can do. Help the cause, the Longman's football world. Till next time. <laughs>